going to read Esther 4, 4 through 17 this morning. I'd like to ask if you'd stand, please, as we read the word of God together aloud. Let's read. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why this was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, There is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. You may be seated. If ever you come across in your readings a name like Hathak, and you, like me, aren't sure how to pronounce it, you read it quickly, you read it confidently, and you just go with it. That's what you do. Let's pray this morning. Father, I just ask that you would show us Lord, what it means as we continue to discover how to be active in our faith. 
I pray that we would see that this is a process. I pray that we would see that not everyone is like a light switch in their conversion, but that through your process of sanctification, you change us. And often that's over the course of time. But I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would become increasingly active, increasingly efficient um, in your mission to reach this lost world with your good news, your gospel. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So our storyline is advancing rather quickly. We find the queen, quote, deeply distressed. Why is the queen deeply distressed. She's just learned that an appointed official underneath her her husband, King Xerxes, has ordered the death of an entire race. He's ordered the death um, of uh, her people, in fact, which is genocide, and all because Esther's first cousin, Mordecai, will not bow down as is customary in the day to the official. Now, this story um, is nearly hard uh, to summarize weekly because it's so extensive the farther along we get. But if you've not been here for the first three chapters, I'd encourage you to read them and catch up uh, to speed. Last week, we left you with this thought. If you're in duress, there's an opportunity at the bottom. There's an opportunity in every crisis There's an opportunity to look up. You may have said things like this. I wish it would have never happened. I wouldn't have chosen this. I would not wish this, whatever this is, on anybody. But those who say such things, if they're believers, often follow that with thoughts like these. But I have never grown so much in my faith as I did or am doing in that dark time, in this season. I've never felt so close to God in my entire life. I would have never learned these lessons had I not gone through what I went through. Um, I... Had I not gone through cancer or betrayal or divorce or poverty or uh, depression or bankruptcy or the loss of a loved one, and you name the tragedy, oftentimes our opportunities for spiritual growth come in the middle of them. And that's exactly what's happening here in the book of Esther. Esther has learned that there is a crisis. The crisis is certainly personal. It's more than just personal, but it's very personal to her. Verse 5. So she sent garments to clothe Mordecai, that he might take off his sackcloth. He wouldn't accept them. Uh, this is a bit odd for us to read. We're like, wait a minute, millions of people are about to die. Why are you sending your relative a new suit? <laughs> what does this have to do with anything? What's going on here? Why, why? This is a weird time, Esther, to go to go shopping at the mall. Okay, what are you doing? So here's what's going on. Esther had not been in contact with her first cousin for some time. He's out weeping. He's out wailing. He's out protesting what would soon be twice the death tally. Historians uh, tell us even more that of World War II era Jews. 
roughly 15 million people, it's estimated, would have died had Haman's request been realized. Okay? So, what, what's happening here is that, um, if we might put it in today's language, uh, Mordecai, Mordecai starts, uh, you know, his Twitter feed starts trending. His Facebook wall starts exploding. Um, he um, invites the media to, to show up. And a helicopter starts circling overhead. Um, did uh, Facebook and Twitter and helicopters exist in, the, in this time uh, in the Persian kingdom under the reign of King Xerxes? Of course they didn't. If you're visiting, we're trying to give you some sense of what's taken place. But he's leading a very public charge of mourning and of weeping and of uh, protesting. And what Mordecai is communicating in his rejection is this. No, Esther, no cuz. It ain't time to settle down. It's too early to settle down. Don't tell me not to be mad. Have you ever said that to anybody? Don't tell me not to be angry right now. I have a right to be angry. This is what he's saying. Um, stopping to, to take a shower right now, he's saying, to, to, to appear dignified would be premature considering the gravity of what's happening. This is the impending slaughter of, of up to 15 million people. How dare you, Esther, tell me to get cleaned up and to look presentable and come before the king. I ain't got time for that. How many of you know you can ask the right question at the wrong time and get the wrong answer? Isn't so much of life about timing? Isn't so much of communication about timing? Absolutely. Mordecai says, we're just now getting traction. People are showing up in droves. I can't leave. I'm a leader in this. I need to stay here. Verse 6. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why this was. And Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai took him, uh, told him rather all that had happened and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. If you remember this, Haman went to King Xerxes and basically said, allow me to kill them all. Mordecai isn't bowing to me. This is so typical of all the Jewish people. This isn't a Mordecai problem. This is a systemic problem. Was this a systemic problem? It absolutely was not a systemic problem, but that's the way he communicated communicated to his upper, okay? And he convinced Xerxes that this was a corporate, national issue. And so, what we see is that he's, his, his plan is to basically kill, murder, plunder these people, newborns, aged alike, and to pull their gold teeth out to rob them of everything that they've ever worked for, and to feed the king's treasury with, with what is stolen, with what is taken. Does the king need money? Absolutely not. Does the king love money? <laughs> Absolutely does. And so this is what's happened. 
uh, it would have been an exceedingly large amount of money. How many of you know if 15 million people each have a dollar? That's a lot of money, right? So this is, this is what he's after. If you're new, this evil demonic official named Haman who devises this plan, um, the one who recommends it to the king, he manipulates King Xerxes, okay? Let me ask you this, though. Who's really pulling the puppet strings? Yeah. Satan is. We've talked about this. Satan always wants to destroy God's people. He talked Herod into it. Satan did. He talked Haman into this plan. He'd later talk Hitler into this plan. In fact, if your name begins with an H, we're going to pause and pray for you right now. No, I'm just just teasing. Um, But think about it. Coincidental lettering aside, Satan destroyed God's people in the garden. Satan did so in Sodom and Gomorrah, in Egypt under the rule of Pharaoh in the Babylonian exile in the book of Acts with the early church. And while it largely goes unreported today, is persecution or isn't it still happening around the globe? Absolutely is. Absolutely is. Go to thevoiceofthemartyrs.com. You can read about the latest persecution. It happens on a weekly, if not daily basis that Christians are murdered. Um, Even uh, a couple weeks ago, as we talked about, 11 Jews lives were taken in a uh, in a Pennsylvania synagogue. Okay, our war. Here's the point is not against what? Flesh and blood or people. Somebody said it. It's against Satan and all of the powers that he has enlisted. I will not be around the bush on this point. There is a whole group of fallen angels that are hell-bent on destroying us. Every day. And if they can talk you into an affair, they'll do it. And if they can talk you into an addiction, they'll do it. And if they can nudge you toward debt and bankruptcy, they'll do that. In every way, they will undergird the purpose and plan, undermine, I should say, the purpose and plan of of God. And so darkness has absolutely declared war on the light. Two kingdoms are colliding. We don't need to be afraid of that because there's a tendency to let the pendulum swing in that direction where people just, you know some of them, they just fear all the time. The devil. We don't need to be fearful of the devil. Greater is he that is within us and he that's in the world. That's the devil. Greater is he that's in us. It's Jesus. Light is greater than dark. We just need to be mindful and watchful. Amen. These are realities. We don't see them. They're there. Esther, verse uh, 8 and 9 in chapter 4, Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. So notice how active Mordecai, by now, this chapter 4, has become with his faith. He's increasingly active. By God's grace, he's making, what's the word? progress. He's growing. Mordecai sends a messenger 
that has access to the queen. The message is Haman's going to kill us all. It's going to happen very quickly. He's going to pay off the king the day and hour are set. Here's the paperwork to prove it. Here's the execution date. Tell Esther to say something. Tell Esther to do something. And at this point in the book, this isn't necessarily a guaranteed thing because she also has been rather passive. She's been silent. She's been uh, private. She hasn't spoken up. Other people have made decisions for her. Allow me this uh, opportunity to make this point. How easy is it for us to sit back and say, it's out of my control as an excuse to not do something about it? This is really beyond me. I shouldn't meddle in that, really, when you think about it. And we talk ourselves into in action when God would have us get involved. How easy is it for us to say, everything's big and I'm just small. This can't be blamed on me. The current of culture, it's like this enormous river and I'm just a a little leaf that just kind of floats along in it. How could I possibly affect change against that injustice? Therefore, there's nothing I can do. I'm just going to sit on my hands. Until this point, this is the way Esther appears to us. I almost said Edgar appears to us. (laughs) Esther appears to us in this story. She's not standing up spiritually. Her faith is a secret. Nobody knows that she belongs to God. Let me ask you this question. Do other people know that you belong to God? Do they know that? Is he of value to you in their eyes according to their perception? Or is your faith a secret? Because God forbid it be an inconvenience. And for how many of you has that posture not worked out very well? Maybe as a result of not being fully committed, you're a mess, like Mordecai and Esther are are in. And it's possible that you shouldn't have married him or been at that party or accepted that drink or got pregnant then or bought that house or taken on that debt or burned that relationship. And now you're in this very difficult place. Might I suggest... It's time to be active. Might I suggest it's time to take this public to say something, to do something, to get moving. There is no doubt that Esther gets the ball on her own two-yard line. She's an orphan. She's probably poor. Mordecai, her first cousin and adoptive dad, he's definitely not getting the Dad of the Year award by any stretch. Sometimes, or I should say, but now, he's telling Esther, oddly enough, get going. Take initiative. Make spiritual progress. Have you ever noticed that sometimes when God gets a hold of one person like he did Mordecai in this story, and he's inwardly grieved, and he's making it public, his own expression, that God will get hold of another person through that person. 
I remember um, the, one of the first few years that we were at a church, um, Cassandra Ziegelmeyer, and there may even have been another one before her, accepted Jesus. And it's just like all of a sudden another person showed up and accepted Jesus. And all of a sudden another person showed up and accepted Jesus. And I, I just bumped into to Chris um, Lotzer this morning who's, uh, who's wearing a no-shave November beard and looking all hip and cool. But I think Chris was a part of Cassandra's experience with God. He was friends with her husband, Scott. And then Chris started coming, still attending here, here today. And I would, I would count probably between a dozen and two dozen people who experience God, some of them now passing along the faith to their kids because of her conversion. Last week, Taylor, this young man, gave his heart to Jesus Christ publicly. I asked him if, he could, if I could share this. And he raised his hand and he said, I want to be a Christian. My hope is that translates into Taylor's friends. That his buddies come with him to church. That his buddies meet Jesus as his house is working. Mordecai is becoming changed. Now Esther is becoming active. So here's another question for everybody in the room to consider. What opportunity today has God given you to make some kind of progress in your faith? There is a sense of urgency in this text. Don't say in response to this reading, yeah, I guess I'm just, you know, now that you mention it, Pastor, I'm just going to add a little bit more of Jesus to my to-do list. He's not like an action step, right? He's like what every action step hangs on. That's who he is. Jesus is not an item. He's not something to be completed. He's someone that affects everything in our life. Amen? So what is the Holy Spirit speaking to you? Maybe it's to start reading the Bible. Maybe it's time to confess some sin and get back on the right track. I got an email not too long ago from a friend that said, Praise God, it's been X number of months and I'm on the right track and it started with a confession. Maybe that's you. Maybe it's time to pursue a godly friendship for the first time in your life. The other ones aren't working. Maybe it's time to to join a church family. doesn't have to be this one. Maybe it's time to shop on Thursday of this week at 4 p.m. for Gobble Gobble Give because Elaine Vanderhoof, who shopped for the last seven years, is going to Madison to watch her son Max play in the state championship. She needs a break. Somebody give her a Kit Kat. Let her go watch her boy play football. Pick up some turkeys. Drop them off at the food pantry. What is it that God is asking you to do? So Mordecai is making progress, and he's urging Esther to do the same. And I want to urge you, make progress in your faith. So she's got a decision to make, verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say. Did you notice what Esther did for the first time, I think, in the text? What verb do we read? She commanded. 
Esther commanded somebody. She's taking charge. She's acting as a leader. She's taking initiative. She's no longer just concerned with herself. We don't really know when she got saved. We don't, we don't know uh, when she had this moment with God, this instantaneous thing. Some of you have had a dramatic experience like my father-in-law, my late father-in-law did, where he was smoking and chewing and go, going with girls that were doing, and, and then all of a sudden, God, boom, saved him, and he stopped doing everything wrong. He started doing everything right. It was radical life transformation in a moment. He's got the date circled on his calendar. He can remember it. Others of you are like, I'm not really sure. I, I kind of went to church growing up. My parents kind of believed in God, but they kind of didn't. And I never really was devout as a, a child, nor was I like this devout atheist. But I, I know I wasn't walking with God. And gosh, it, at some point along the way, I just started changing. And it's been gradual. And what God has, has done in me is no less sincere. It's no less profound than what God has done in your late father-in-law, pastor. I know it's real. I just can't define a moment. It seems that that's how it happened with Esther. I don't know if she could tell you the date she got saved. What she'd likely say is, here's what I know. This is the season in which I started growing. This is the season in which I started changing and making a, a, a progress and coming alive in Jesus Christ. I became active. Verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law, be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. See, she hasn't seen the king for 30 days. They've only been married for five years. Don't be under any sort of, of Christian Sunday school illusion that this is a happy marriage in which they're holding hands daily and frolicking through the forest. He has in every way already turned back to his harem. He's moved on. Here's what she's saying. I'm going to do something, but it's very dangerous. I haven't seen him in 31 days, 30, 30 days. Is faith or is faith not often dangerous? It's a risk. Faith is action in the face of opposition. Esther is looking at her situation. She's saying, okay, the only way that I get the king to reverse the edict or decree to kill all, all Jews is to go before him. She says, or this is rather what Mordecai says, and she says, here's the problem. He sits on a throne. He tends to drink a lot on that throne. And if you simply approach the king without him beckoning you to do so, you're dead. There are no repeat offenders because there are no repeat offenses. You only get one shot. 
There was even an ancient archaeological dig of the king of Persia sitting on his throne, and there's a guy standing right behind him with what? An axe. Can you imagine? Being like, I need to see the king, but like it doesn't matter how big the issue is. It's no longer a big issue when the guy behind the king has a big axe. Everything becomes a small issue. The issue wasn't big enough for a person with a tender neck to get close to the guy with the blade. So this requires courage. How many of you in managerial positions think this makes for an effective policy? Like That would work awesome in my office. You just put a guy outside the door with a big axe, right? Is your question important? <laughs> Nobody has a big enough problem to walk into that office, right? So you're only allowed to see the king if you're invited. You stand off at a distance. He, he, if he lowers his staff, you walk up to it. You put your hand on the end of the scepter. And that meant you're welcome to start talking. If the king keeps his scepter up, then you get your head chopped off. Is this a risk for the queen? You bet it is. Verse 11. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told him to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. It's an interesting statement because as far as we know, who's the only person that knows that Esther is a Jew? Mordecai. It's possible, possible, that this is like a thinly veiled threat. That it's blackmail. You do it or I'm going to tell. You're not going to escape it. Maybe not. We don't know. Could be a sincere caution that one day he'll find out. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That phrase, for such a time as this, has been so iconic among Christians to indicate, to allude to the providence of God. Then Esther told them to reply, to Mordecai. Esther's faced with a crucial decision. Am I going to take a risk with my own life for the faith and endure whatever consequences come to me? And consider this. I am not telling you that if you say yes to Jesus, like Esther eventually said yes to this assignment, that it's going to be smooth. For her, it went great. For John the Baptist, not so great. He got his head chopped off. Even Esther's story does not end in roses. Xerxes doesn't go to Bible college. (laughs) Can you imagine that? Save! Sanctified! He starts planting churches. That did not happen. They don't have a ton of bilingual missionary children that we're aware of. Doesn't happen. What are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying choosing Jesus Christ does not always end well on this earth. 
things make it more difficult. But faith lies in trusting and obeying Jesus no matter the outcome. Amen. And that's what ultimately she acted upon, no matter the outcome. Verse 15 and 16. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. She's bringing God's people together, like in a church. We need to lean on each other. She wasn't this lone figure that she's made out to be in Bible studies. Mordecai's there. God's people are there. In church family, we need God's people. I made that point earlier. We're in it together. Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, day or night. She's saying, I need God's people to help me. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm scared that I could be killed. The only reason that I am queen is because Vashti did not obey one of the king's commands. I am about to not obey one of the king's commands commands. I'm about to go, even though he has not called for me. This could not go well for me. And in the scriptures, when God's people fast, it is usually preparing their hearts and minds for something major, something difficult, some ministry calling, some mission opportunity. Before Jesus' public ministry began, what did he do for 40 days? Prayed and and fasted. He ate nothing. Then I will go to the king, she says, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. She's practicing what we would call in Christian theology civil disobedience. She's choosing to disobey the laws of governance in order to obey the laws of God. Do not murder. That's one of God's commands. So she's saying, I'm going to disobey the king in order to uphold that command. That's faith. That's a believer. You may have a a season of rebellion. You may have a time of backsliding, we would call it, in the southeast where I grew up. But if you cannot have an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ and not change, main point of the sermon, if you can't change, You're not in tune with Jesus. If you're in tune with Jesus, you make progress. Who are the only two people in the story that don't make spiritual progress? Xerxes and Haman. They don't grow. There's no change of heart. They're the same at the end of the book that they are at the beginning. And that is how it is with people who do not know God. Let me put it very simply. If you're not progressing in your faith, you do not know God. There is no way that someone who has had an authentic encounter with Jesus Christ, that they aren't moved to act on his behalf. I'm not saying there aren't seasons. I'm not saying there aren't ebbs and flows. I'm not saying there are times and acts of disobedience. But I'm saying in general, we become more Christ-like when we're with Jesus. Do you remember what was said of the disciples when they came before the council? They said, oh my gosh, I'm paraphrasing. These men have been with who? Jesus. 
People who know God change. People who don't know God don't change. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther ordered him. Esther's being courageous. She's making decisions, acting with wisdom. She went away and did everything that Mordecai said. Now, final point. Actually, it's just an illustration. A.W. Tozer, who wrote one of uh, my favorite books, I read it on sabbatical this last June. It's called Knowledge of the Holy. It's a classic. He gave us, in in another work, a very fitting analogy. This is what he said. He basically said that God is the captain of a large ship. I think his analogy fits well in in this book. Um, And God's plan and purpose is to get the ship across a very harrowing, dangerous channel and safely into harbor on the other side at port. But the ship is full of people. Many of those people are addicted. Some of those people are violent. Some of those people are abusive. Some of those people are greedy. All of those people are selfish. Is God responsible as captain for what happens on that ship? He's not responsible for what happens on that ship. He's not responsible for every behavior. He's not responsible for people who go against his will and decide that their own will is the best route. Not everything that happens on that ship happens for a what? Reason. Absolutely not. There are accidents. There is sinfulness. There is mutiny. There is excess. And Mordecai and Esther and you and I, to bring it full circle, we're on the ship. It's called life. God's our captain. There are going to be difficult and distressing circumstances. We are not where we ought to be on that ship at all times. Sometimes we decide to go to the lounge late at night, frankly. Amen? We've done it. We've been there. We've made some stupid decisions. We're not always doing what we we ought to do. But God is with us. He's still the captain. And so he's with us. He never leaves us, forsakes us, abandons us. God is not, in other words, a father who walks away from his kids. He does not do that. He's there. And just to be clear... What am, what am I distinguishing this from? I'm just distinguishing it from, from fatalism. You've heard of that? Um, excuse me. Yeah, from, from fatalism, or some might call it de- determinist thinking. In other words, um, we don't believe in as fate would have it. That's not what we believe. That's fatalism. We believe in providentialism. Meaning, we believe we live on a fallen planet. We believe that we're steeped in sin. We believe that we're imperfect people, imperfect lives, and much of which is our responsibility. But God, he's still sovereign. He's still captain. He's still good. Amen. Amen. So not only is he in control, his sovereignty, but he also loves us. He's good to us. See, if you have 
Sovereignty without his goodness, who do you have in the story? You have Xerxes. Xerxes was sovereign, but he wasn't good. If you have goodness without sovereignty, who do you have? You've got Esther. God's both. Amen. All right. Are you here this morning? Okay. Your faces are communicating that was a terrible sermon. I hope not. I hope not. Father, we just uh, thank you for your sovereignty. We thank you for your goodness. We love you. You're in control. You also care. Lord, sometimes you intervene against people's will. It's certainly true. Lord, at times you let us navigate a bit on our own, ultimately steering us toward eternity if we submit to your direction and to your decision-making. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would continue to have us have our hearts in a place of submission to your navigation. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.